Hey everyone, this is Chad, pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thank you for taking time to listen to my latest sermon. It will play in just a minute. Before it does, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast. This is the best way to make sure that you know when we upload new content, and we have some exciting new audio content in the works. You won't want to miss it, so make sure to subscribe. Also, if you find these sermons valuable, please consider leaving us a rating or review on your podcast host. This helps our sermons be heard by more people, and we think that's really important. And finally, if God uses this sermon to impact you, please let me know. All you have to do is email respond at creekside.me. I'd love to know how God used my words in your life. Again, thanks for listening. I hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Well, I want to talk about Jesus today, and perhaps in the midst of the series at some point you said, well, where's, where's the talk about Jesus? Uh, he's the central figure to all of this, and, and perhaps even, and I don't think you probably thought about all this as much as I would have liked, but maybe you just took it so deep in your contemplation of what I was saying that you're like, well, man, if I'm going to spend this time, I, I challenge you to read Psalms in 30 days. If I'm going to spend all this time on Psalms, what, what about Jesus? You know, I mean, isn't he the central figure of Christianity? Isn't he the most important part? And, and what about him in all of this? Shouldn't I spend, you know, the month reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and learning about Jesus because he's the most important? And, and what we're going to see today is that the Psalms are, I believe, uh, deeply important to our understanding of Jesus. And one of the things I think that is cool about how the Psalms explain Jesus to us, just a little heads up on this, is that they tell it to us before he came, right? And and it would have been so easy, to, and we know this, like to have a, a book about somebody after their life and, and to describe exactly what took place. And, and we have some of those about Jesus and, and we have tons of those that aren't about Jesus, right? Like biographies or even autobiographies. And in those books, it's really easy for people to, to look back and say, well, this is who I was and, and where I was coming from and the purpose of my life or this was his purpose and what he did and all of that. But what can be even cooler is the stuff that is said about a person who accomplishes much before they actually do it, right? And, uh, and when you look at documentaries or you, uh, about people's lives, when you watch a documentary or you read a book, for, for some, the most impressive part is that what they ended up accomplishing could be seen in them from the time that they were little, even before they accomplished those things. Uh, I think of whenever I, I talk about that, and I don't know why, but I think about LeBron James. I don't like thinking about LeBron James, but I do think about LeBron James because I, I remember this this uh, this moment. Like, I don't know why I remember this in detail, but I had pulled into my parents' house, or I was parking in front of their house, and I, I was listening to sports radio, and, and they were talking about this, like, 16-year-old kid who was going to be the greatest basketball player, at least since Michael Jordan. And it's like, 
wow, that's stupid, you know, like, and then all of a sudden he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, and he's similar to me in age, and, and, and so then all of a sudden, like, I, I think I was young college, and his high school games were being televised, and I never remember high school games being televised, and I was like, this is a lot of hype, right, and, and now you look back, and you're like, that's pretty incredible that the media nailed it, right, because he's become the greatest basketball player, at least since Michael Jordan, and it's, it's really interesting to be like, wow, I mean, from the time the kid was, turns out, like 12 years old, people thought this would happen. And I think that the Psalms really lay forth Jesus like that. They make it more special, more amazing, because, because they tell in the kind of richest, deepest way about the coming of Jesus and what Jesus will accomplish in ways that, uh, that even the authors couldn't understand that they were talking about Jesus when they wrote it, but they tell it in this deeply rich way, and it, and it turns out to be true, which is pretty incredible. And, and I think, as we'll get into this, the, the other really cool part, uh, and I just thought about this backstage, this isn't even in my sermon notes, is that, that oftentimes when we're, when we're sharing Jesus with people, because we have a sense of duty maybe to do it, because we're scared, so we're trying to just get the words out as fast as possible. Uh, it can be really it can be really dry and unemotional and disconnected. And, and it's like this story about how this guy died and he rose again, which is awesome. It's an incredible story. But like, you get to go to heaven. And, and when we tell that story, people are like, what does it do for me now? And where's the emotional connection to that story in the present, right? And as I've said in this series before, the Psalms were written between covenant and culmination, between promise and fulfillment of promise. And that means, as we've seen, seen in this series, that they're deeply emotional because they're, they're written by people who knew what God was going to do for them, but they, they couldn't see it. And they were living their, their day-to-day lives, which, which sucked sometimes. And they're like expressing these emotions to God. And what's so cool is, is that the Psalms tell the story of Jesus, but they do it in a way that is more emotional, frankly, than, than the guys who were given the job of writing his story in the New Testament because they're writing in words that express their own emotions. And maybe they didn't even know that they were writing the story of, of Jesus in their own emotions. And so we're, gonna, we're just going to see that the Psalms point to Jesus, but I just wanted to set it up by saying, it's amazing because it tells the story of Jesus long before Jesus. And it's amazing because it tells the story of Jesus in words that, that we as humans really get. Because it tells the story of Jesus in, in an emotional way. So this, this is going to come to us in Luke chapter 24. And in Luke chapter 24 verse 36 we read this. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them. And said to you, to them, peace be with you. And, and so, who's talking? That's an important question. If you were just to go back to the story before, it's actually what I preached on last Easter. But it's this really cool story that we call the road to Emmaus. And it's a story about these two disciples that had followed Jesus. We don't know much about them at all except for what takes place in this story. And they're sad because Jesus has been killed. And so they leave Jerusalem, which is like the, the religious hub of 
Israel, right? And, and they're leaving and they're just going back to where they came from because Jesus had died and their hopes are gone and they're sad and they're just like, I guess, what do we do now? I guess I'm going to go back home and do my job and, you know, do whatever they did before Jesus had shown up and started doing ministry in the Palestinian area. And while they're on this walk, they meet a stranger and they start walking with them and, and he says, why do you guys look so sad? And the stranger says, or the, and, and the people say to the stranger, these guys say to the stranger, like, well, haven't you heard what happened in Jerusalem? Don't you know what's going on? Are you the only person that hasn't heard about Jesus and how we thought he was the Messiah, the one who would save us, and then he died? And, and then the stranger starts to explain to them why Jesus had to suffer and die. And, and then they show up at their place that they're staying for the night and they invite Jesus in and oh by the way it's Jesus I just gave it away um, but they invite him in and all of a sudden as he breaks bread they recognize him and then he disappears in their midst and they just turn around and they start go running back to Jerusalem because they need to tell all the other disciples like hey by the way seems like this whole rumor about Jesus being alive might be true because we just hung out with him you know for quite a while in fact as we walked down this road and and, and so this is this is the story, and so they've run back, they're talking to the disciples, they're in a room, and Jesus shows up, stands among them, and he says, peace be with you. And then the story continues in verses 37 through 43, they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet, it is I myself, touch me and see, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you See, I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he said to them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Now, uh, our children's Bible that we use with Hazel that corresponds with our, uh, with our children's curriculum here at church. If you don't have one as a parent you, and you have kids, you should definitely get one. They're awesome. Uh, but it has this, this kind of part of the story, and it doesn't tell it with the road to Emmaus attached to it, but it has this part of the story where Jesus shows up in their midst, and they're all scared. And, and, and I, I like it because, because it shows it in a funny way, but one of the guys is, is underneath a table, and another guy's falling backwards out of his chair, and his his plate that has fish on it because he's been eating is flying in the air and we're, me and Hazel point to it every time and the other guys are just kind of standing there like completely shocked like what is happening right now and I mean it's so easy for us looking back to say like how did come on Jesus rose from the grave I mean that's part of the story but but it's like think about it if Jesus showed up in your midst just coming through the walls or whatever and you're just in a locked room that'd be that'd be pretty intense moment and and we forget about that and I like that Hazel's Bible doesn't forget about that. But here they are and they're scared because Jesus was dead and they saw him dead. Like there's no question that he is dead for them. And, and it's important for us to stop and just for a second consider, consider this. Because there's people who act like they believe the story of Jesus, the gospel story. And yet it changes nothing about their lives. They go on in a very regular, normal way. But I want you to pay attention to, to what took place in this first century story. These people who had followed Jesus around the countryside. 
saw him die, completely believed he was dead and that he wasn't coming back. Their joy had turned to sorrow. They had absolutely no hope that anything was going to turn around, that anything was going to get better. And then Jesus shows up in their midst. And it changes absolutely everything. Because these same men who were scared of a ghost, who were scared for their lives, almost all of them ended up giving their own lives in order to tell people this same story. They died. I mean, I don't mean they just like followed Jesus and, you know, they gave their lives like in a, in a metaphorical sense or whatever. I mean, they, they actually died because they believed so strongly in the power of what Jesus did for them. They wanted to tell everybody. Now, I just think that if you're one of those people who are like, yeah, I kind of get that and I kind of believe it, you need to just consider how, how deeply they believed he was dead and then how deeply they believed he was alive again. And the reality is for all of us that, that if we believe that, it has to change, change everything. It has to change everything. If it's not true, it, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Christianity is a very worthless religion. It's a, it's a stupid religion if Jesus didn't get out of the grave. But if he did, then you must give your life entirely to it. That's what the Bible kind of declares. And so just for you who are here this morning that are like, yeah, I kind of feel like a Christian, I kind of believe that, but it hasn't changed you, it hasn't impacted you, you don't really care that much, that needs to change. And either you need to reject Christianity outright because you don't believe it to be true, or you need to consider the ramifications of a man who was dead, who everybody was sad because he was dead, getting out of the grave. And what is said about that resurrection afterwards? The disciples are like, first they doubt, and then Jesus is like, look at me, and it's really me. I mean, this is me. I'll eat with you, you know. I mean, if that's what it takes, this is a real thing. This isn't some, like, ghostly vision idea. I mean, I'm really, in a bodily sense, alive and back with you. But it says, and I, I just love this, while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, I love that. Those two words can translate shock and joy. And I think, I think the phrase, it's too good to be true, really applies here, right? Like once they get over the initial fear and they're looking at Jesus, they're like, wait, wait, I, I, I can see you. I'm talking to you. You look just like my friend. I've spent three years with you. It seems like you. But then this other thing sets in and it's like, this is too good to be true. All my hopes were dashed. But there you are. You stand in front of me. And they understood what I think so many people don't get today. That the resurrection of Jesus is like the greatest thing. It is the greatest thing ever. It has huge implications that the disciples can understand. But at least they understood like this makes things right. This makes things better. This makes things okay. This turns my sorrow back into joy. This gives me hope. 
And we get so much more if we just read the Bible. Like, this means eternal life for us. This means forgiveness of sin for us. This means that we don't have to fear death. This means that we can have joy no matter what we face. This means forgiveness of sins. I mean, we get even more. But they just got like this little glimpse of like, this is better. And yet they couldn't believe it because it seemed too good to be true. But it's true. And again, I would say, if it is true, and and the people who lived through it thought it was, then you should give your entire life to it. Let me just give you the quick story of, of this whole gospel thing that we learn. We're sinners. You know that. You do tons of bad things. You've done them since you were a little kid. You've lied. You've been a jerk, you've been angry, you've yelled at people, you've said things that you can't believe you said and you regret and you hurt people. Some of you have probably stolen things. I did when I was six once. I mean, you've done all these things, right? And God looked down from heaven and he said, they're destined for an eternity in hell. And so he came down from heaven and he paid the punishment of that sin by dying on the cross. But it wasn't just the physical death that, that allowed for him to pay our punishment. Is that when he hung on the cross, he, he literally like had hell on his shoulders. He had all of our sins nailed to him in some way. And then this great thing happened. He conquered sin and death by rising again. In the power of God, he rose again. And he did all of it so that we could have a relationship with God because our sins are forgiven and we could spend eternity with him. And, and, and if that's all true, then it changes everything. And I hope you believe it is true. And so here's what Jesus does as he, as he has this conversation with them. It says in 24, 44, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the Law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. What's so fascinating about this to me is, well, yes, the Psalms are involved, and so it works for this sermon series, but, but the Law of Moses, like, that's somewhere I would point to. If you're saying, like, why is the Old Testament important? Which some of you probably think it's not at all if you've thought about it at all, but, like, why is the Old Testament important? Well, I say, well, well look at the laws, like the Ten Commandments, right? And, and that's a great starting point for saying why Jesus was important because you broke the Ten Commandments. All of you have broken at least one of the commandments. I'm going to guess you've broken most of the commandments at some point in your life. And so that points to the fact that, that you have a sin problem. I could get that, right? The law makes sense to me. And the prophets make sense to me because they ran around saying, hey, there's going to come a guy. He's going to be God-like at least. He's going to be God. They probably didn't fully understand that and grasp it. He's going to be God in human form and he's going to come and he's going to sit on the throne of David and he's going to make things right and he'll suffer a ton and, and, and he's going uh, to make things good for you and he's going to make things right forever. So I was like, hey, the prophets, like they tell the story of Jesus coming someday. That's so clear to me. Like, yes, of course we need the law to point to Jesus. And of course we need the prophets to point to Jesus. But I, would, I don't think in casual conversation I would ever say to you like, and we need the Psalms. But we do. And so the question becomes, Why? 
And I want to talk about that in a second. But first, I just want to say again that there are 116 or so quotations of the Psalms in the New Testament, more than any other book except maybe Isaiah. And the reason that it's an except maybe is because there's points in Scripture where you're like, is that a quotation or not? Do they just happen to say the same thing as the book of Psalms? Or like in their language, which is just because, you know, God inspired both these books, or are they trying to quote the Psalms? That's the reason that it's like maybe that many or few less or whatever but it's around 116 it's the most in in the new testament uh by a lot of people's standards and so it's clear like when the guys telling the story of jesus thought about how to tell the story of jesus the psalms just came to their minds I think a big part of that is what I've already said. Emotionally, these first century Jewish people, they probably just connected with the Psalms. And so it was easy for them to be like, these are emotional books and I'm emotional and here it is. But let's look just a little bit deeper and say, why? Why the Psalms? And, and I think the, the first answer is, is in this. The Psalms explain Israel's history and theology, which is a history and theology that points to Jesus. And I, I hope you're aware of that. The entire Old Testament points to Jesus. Now, on that, I don't mean that every single sentence points to Jesus. And there's people who try to understand the Old Testament that way. I'm not one of those people like, well, it says the. So what does the really mean about Jesus? Like, I mean, it's not that bad usually, but, but, but I'm not saying that. But the, but the entirety of the Old Testament, it's history, it's theology, it's pointing to the fact that, that Jesus will come and Jesus will save. I mean, from the very beginning, when we see the fall of man and why we need a Savior to, to right up until the end, when, when it's saying, look, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. It's all pointing to Jesus. And, and the book of Psalms, interestingly, has been called a microcosm of the entire Old Testament. And so it makes sense that you could look to these 150 Psalms and, and begin to find stuff that points to the character and the nature and the work of Jesus. One article speaking about Psalms was called Israel's History Sung, Not Said. And really it's saying, look, the Psalms sing the history of Israel, the history that points to Jesus. Another author said, the epitome, the Psalms are the epitome of Israel's experience. The whole entire experience, an experience, and I know I've said this like four times, but it needs to be in your head, an experience that points to Jesus. That's really cool, right? Because most of you don't have time to memorize the history of Israel and most of you probably don't have time to go back and, and even just say like where in the Old Testament do I find these allusions to Jesus and, and to be able to try to summarize all of it. But, it. but at least you could find a couple Psalms, right? And say, wow, that describes the history of Israel. That describes the coming Jesus, the coming Messiah, the coming Christ. That's pretty cool, right? I think it's cool. Maybe you don't think it's cool, but I think that's really cool. Furthermore, the Psalms are an important part of how Jesus explained his own death and resurrection. And he tried to do this while he was alive with his disciples. And it's so important that you understand that contemplating the Psalms does not diminish Jesus. Contemplating the Psalms enhances our understanding of Jesus. 
there's examples. Jesus uses the Psalms to explain himself. In Psalm 118.22, we read, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is like a famous verse for people today, Christians today. Most probably don't even know that it comes out of the Psalms. They just think Jesus calls himself the cornerstone. Jesus quotes a psalm from the cross. Mark 15, 33 and 34 says, At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. And if you read that psalm, it's an incredible psalm. It was one of the passages I preached on in my preaching class in college. You read that psalm and, and it goes about halfway through describing anguish and suffering and pain. And then all of a sudden it's like a light switch goes on. And, and all of a sudden it's describing how God is saved. And, and, and in my mind it's describing resurrection. And so just in Psalm 22 alone, you see the agony of Jesus. And then you see his resurrection. And don't you think if Jesus is up on a psalm saying like, or up on the cross saying like, hey, I'm suffering and I'm going to use words to explain my suffering. Here's a psalm for you. And people that were there that had grown up with religious studies, which most Jewish kids would have done they would have understood like, wow, he's talking about more than just his anguish. He's talking about what Psalm 22 said. And then we see this in Luke 23, 46. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last, Jesus' last words. Psalm 31, 5. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord. My faithful God. I mean the final words of Jesus. Come from the book of Psalms. And we know how important last words are right. And I just see Jesus saying hey. You can see what's written about me. If you'll just flip back in your Bibles a little bit. And open up the Psalms. I find this so fascinating that. The first sermon given after Jesus' resurrection was, was given by Peter, one of Jesus' disciples. And he gets up and the Holy Spirit has just come upon him. And people are like, hey, you guys are speaking. They were speaking in, in different languages. And, and they're like, what's going on here? This is crazy. And, and Peter gets up and he delivers this sermon that would result in thousands of people becoming Christians, followers of Jesus. In the middle of it, he quotes a psalm, Acts 2, 24 through 28. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. He quotes David in the Psalms. Interestingly, Paul 
We know it's the Apostle Paul, who's like the greatest evangelist ever, who told more people about Jesus, or at least resulted in more people, his, his ministry resulted in more people becoming Christians than, than anybody, because we're part of that in a lot of ways, right? I mean, because there's this trickle-down effect to you and I today if we're Christians. In his first recorded sermon, he quotes the Psalms, Acts 13, 32 and 33. We tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he uses this with, in, in connection to 2 Samuel seven fourteen to say, Jesus is the ultimate son. While David may have been a son of God, Jesus is the real son of God. I mean, just listen to what this author said. The early Christians looked first and foremost to the Psalms to understand more fully the significance of Jesus Christ's person and work. Isn't that an incredible idea? That the first place the early Christians looked to figure out their theology and what they should believe about Jesus and and to try to... To, to give language to what they had seen, this death and this resurrection and trying to fathom all of it. The first place they looked was to the Psalms. Now that shouldn't be true of us because we have the Gospels and we have a bunch of stuff written afterwards, the epistles of Paul and some other letters and we should look to those first. But I don't think we should chuck what the early Christians looked at. We should be like, well, we got something new so let's get rid of the old Can you imagine that? Can you imagine throwing out the baby book of somebody super famous because you had a new book? I mean, can you imagine throwing out what was told ahead of the great work because you had seen something written after the great work? That would be idiotic. And yet we've done that in Christian circles. We've said, well, we have this new thing, so let's not focus at all on the old thing. I don't think that should be the case. I don't think that should be the case. So let me just first, I mean, the the Psalms explain, as I said before, Israel's history and theology, a history and theology that point to Jesus. The Psalms are an important part of how Jesus explained his death and resurrection. And now we see the Psalms help us explain Jesus to others. I mean, just consider a conversation where, where somebody's like, well, there's no proof that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And, and we have these, I mean, maybe if you've heard me preach on Easter, there's these, these talking points that we sometimes have, like, well, the Old Testament says, this is what we kind of said, the Old Testament says that Jesus is coming, that's pretty incredible. The Old Testament has all of these prophecies that point to the things that Jesus actually does in his life. And I've said that, that somebody has said, like, if you stack quarters a foot high in all of Texas and drop one in with a mark on it and blindfold a guy and spin him around and stick him somewhere else in Texas and he grabs that quarter by chance, that's statistically about the same as Jesus being able to fulfill all the prophecies that he was able to fulfill uh, in the Old Testament. Might be two feet high, but you get the idea. <laughs> but I think it could just be better if we were a little more specific, right? Like if we're like, hey, Psalm 2 says this, and here's what Jesus did. Or look at Psalm 22. I mean, it says that people would mock this person and They did. The language is the same type of language. What is the chances of this? 
I think that that could be just so much better, right? It, when you give people these obscure, like Jesus fulfilled prophecies, people are like, okay. But if you could just find one psalm and say, like, Jesus fulfilled this prophecy, I think that people would be like, wow. At the very least, that's very cool, right? Like, that's pretty crazy that that, that exact thing happened when it was foretold thousands of years earlier. But also, and I love this, as I said at the beginning, the Psalms are so emotional. And, and if you read Psalm 22, I mean, Psalm 22 is a Psalm of David first. And so David is pouring out his heart to God like, God, you've forsaken me and you've, I'm going to be killed by these people who are mocking me. It's deeply emotional. And when you use that to explain what Jesus suffered on the cross, it can almost be better than like, hey, look, it says he suffered really badly. You see what I'm saying? The emotion of Psalms can connect with people. And I think that maybe that's why these very famous preachers of the gospel, Peter, it's like the foundational piece of the church besides Jesus and Paul, the greatest evangelist ever, the guy that we call the apostle. That's why they used the Psalms in their first sermons because it would connect emotionally and not just theologically and historically and philosophically. And so, the Psalms help us to explain Jesus to others. It's a pretty big deal. And so, and so here, just I'm going to give you one more thing that is so important about the Psalms, but as, as you're trying to form your opinion on the Psalms and, and you're trying to put words to what you experience in your interactions with Jesus, even if those are doubts, even if those are, are, are questions, then the Psalms are an incredible place for you to turn. And if you're ever like, Jesus, I mean, I understand that I get eternal life someday, but do you see what I'm going through? And, and help me put this in perspective, God, as far as like you bringing me hope, but me not feeling it. The Psalms are the place to turn. Or if you're just excited and you're like, wow, this is awesome, and I'm just having a great day, and God is blessing me, and things are good, but I don't want to sound like an arrogant jerk. Turn to the Psalms to put it into language that you can express to others or to God. But also, get a couple psalms in your head that you can just say like, hey, you know those scary moments where you're like, I really want to tell somebody about Jesus. I really, really do, but I don't know if I'll have the words. Well, get some New Testament verses in your head, but also have a psalm in case they're like, how do we know that's true? Well, man, if you just would look at the Old Testament, it's incredible how thousands of years before Jesus, God showed what it would be like for Jesus. It's pretty awesome. And the final thing that's just, that really got me fascinated this week is, is that the Psalms show us how to worship Jesus because of what he did on the cross and in his resurrection. Uh, you turn to the book of Revelation, and, and I said this a couple weeks ago, but I want to I dive just a little deeper on this subject because I think it's really, really important. If you were to turn to the book of Revelation, you, you would see these these moments throughout the book where the, the veil, the curtain of heaven is peeled back and we get to see what heavenly worship looks like. And most of these have pretty profound allusions 
to the language of the book of Psalms. People see the book of Psalms in Revelation 4 and 5, Revelation 7, Revelation 11, Revelation 12, Revelation 15, Revelation 16, and Revelation 19. I mean, people see pretty easily the, the Psalms come out in the heavenly worship that takes place in the book of Revelation. I, I stumbled upon and I... I tried to post this on our, our group Facebook, uh, our Facebook group. It didn't work out very well because I posted it in the wrong place, so none of you have seen this. But I stumbled upon this dissertation, uh, about 276 pages. I didn't think any of you were going to read it all, but, uh, but, it, but it's all about uh, the book of Psalms in the book of Revelation. It was a really fascinating study. Uh, and, uh, and let me just give you some quotes from it. Uh, this is from the abstract before I could... Uh, I knew I could get the dissertation for free. I, uh, <laughs> I was just going to quote the abstract, but it's pretty good anyway. Through an in-depth examination of the use of psalms in Revelation, this thesis demonstrates how significantly the psalms influenced the composition of the book of Revelation and offers a fresh insight of the structure and theology of the book. But then I got into it more because it was free. And he says these things that... I, that I mean, it was well-researched, and, and I agree with him. I, I think he's right. The psalm texts are distinctively integrated into worship scenes, praise or prayer, with a musical instrument in the book of Revelation. Another quote. Interestingly, the worship scenes depicted in Revelations 5, 8 through 14, 8, 3 through 5, 11, 15 through 18, have all alluded to the psalms in a direct or indirect way. And then one other, these seven, seven probable allusions, talking about those psalms, in Revelation to the psalms express the worship of God in Christ, highlighting the final judgment and Jesus as the Messiah. When heaven is peeled back and we see what it's like to worship Jesus, even after the culmination of everything, even after these people... Uh, well, after these people see what glory looks like, right? I mean, you have allusions to those who have been killed, martyrs. You have allusions to, to these other groups of people that, that are described in these heavenly crazy terms. But when they see what glory looks like, they still allude to the Psalms to express worship. It's crazy. It's even more fascinating to me because the book of Revelation is not written to primarily Jewish audiences. And we say, well, what the Jews got the Psalms, but, you know, not us. But he writes and says, look, here's what worship looks like. It looks a lot like the Psalms. And so this morning, I just want you to understand that, that looking at the Psalms does not diminish the importance of Jesus. In fact, it helps us understand the importance of Jesus. It gives language to the experiences that we have with Jesus. It gives background information on the work and person of Jesus. It helps us explain Jesus to other people. It gives us the words to say when emotions don't align with what we know of Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross and in his resurrection. And it helps us in the good and the bad understand how to worship Jesus. 
And so I would say this, the Psalms, as we've seen in this series, teach and admonish. The Psalms speak to us in words that mere words cannot, especially when they're sung. The Psalms should be sung corporately and the songs should be sung individually. The Psalms should be shared in our church gatherings. And the Psalms explain Jesus' death and resurrection and our proper response to it because they explain the history and theology of the Israelites, a history and theology that points to Jesus. They help us explain Jesus to others and they help us understand what it looks like to worship him. The Psalms explain the person, work, and worship of Jesus and so we must use the Psalms. And so here's, here's your homework. Whether you're not a Christian, you're like, wow, that resurrection stuff, you know, I'm interested in all of that. Or, or, or whether you are a Christian, you're like, wow, I should take all that to heart right there. I just want you to go home and I want you to Google this term, messianic psalms. And then you're going to find a whole bunch of things that point you to psalms that talk about Jesus in a very specific way. And I want you to read a couple of those. I want you to think about a couple of those. Maybe even meditate on a couple of those. Maybe even memorize a couple of those so that you can use them to explain your experiences with Jesus, so that you can use them to explain Jesus to others, and so that you can use them to understand how you ought to worship. I want to quote this again. As the Psalms have remained strong, the church has been revived, and personal spiritual life has been enriched, and I think that's in large part because the Psalms point to Jesus. And then Michael Morales says this, Thus, the New Testament continually uses the book of Psalms to fix our gaze upon the excellencies of Christ, upon the majesty, beauty, and glory of the one who through his humiliation and exaltation reigns over the nations, leading them to the heavenly Mount Zion so that, lost in wonder, love, and praise, they may proclaim eternally the glory of the triune God. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that, that is constantly looking at your Gospels, constantly looking at the New Testament and the epistles and all that is written for us, Jesus, about you, after you. But I also pray that we would be a church, God, that looks back at what was said about you before you even arrived on the scene. Lord Jesus, I want us to be a church that explains you in the fullest sense. I want us to be a church that understands you in the fullest sense. I want us to be a church that worships you in the fullest sense, God. And I don't believe we can do that without thinking about the Psalms. And so let us be a church that does. I pray, God, if there's any people here who might kind of think that you're cool, who... who who kind of believe in the Christian story but haven't given their lives to you, I pray that you would compel them to give their lives to you. If there's people here who have rejected you outright, who don't believe it, God, or people who will listen online that fall into that category, I pray, God, that the Psalms would light their path and show them the truth of what you have done for us. And they would come to believe, God, because it's just not possible for you to have done what you did without you being who you said you are, God. I pray, God, I pray, God, that all who hear this sermon would worship you more fully, that would, they would bring you glory more fully, God. And I pray that the Psalms would be a part of that. I ask these things in your holy name. Amen.